you're a book banner. No, you're a book banner. No, you're a book banner. <laughs> Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow, and this is the Weekly Roundup, where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup, is Lucy Caldwell, a veteran political strategist and tech founder. She's a board advisor at the Renew Democracy Initiative and a former senior political advisor at the Goldwater Institute. Lucy, as always, it's great to have you here. Good morning. Good morning, Ron. Good to be with you. Also returning to the Roundup is Liam Donovan. Liam has nearly two decades of experience working at the intersection of politics and policy. He's currently a principal at Bracewell LLP and spent two election cycles at the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is where we worked together, and was the regional finance director for Senator John Cornyn. Liam, it's great to have you back. Good to be back, Ron. Also, what's the name of your podcast? The Lobby Shop. The Lobby Shop. Up first this week... Around 150 Israeli hostages are still being held captive by Hamas after a six-day ceasefire deal brought nearly 100 home. We'll talk about the bias and how the media has covered it and the abhorrent and anti-Semitic public comments at the Oakland City Council meeting this week. Then we'll break down President Biden's continued push to make the 2024 election about the economy and whether it helps or hurts in a potential, likely, Trump rematch later. We'll look at the Senate negotiations over increased border security and aid for Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan, and the increasingly unsustainable stalemate on immigration. After the main show, we'll head over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about a Supreme Court case about whether you have a right to a jury trial in civil cases and what it has to do with the power of the administrative state. To join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or just open the show notes for this episode and click the link right at the top. Late on Wednesday, Hamas released 16 hostages in the sixth day of a temporary ceasefire. Over the course of six days, Hamas released 97 total hostages and Israel released 210 prisoners. It's unclear exactly how many hostages remain in Gaza. Estimates are somewhere between 140 and 159. The pause in fighting has also allowed humanitarian aid and fuel to enter Gaza. On Sunday, Cindy McCain, who's now the director of the World Food Program, said that Gaza is on the brink of famine. CIA Director Bill Burns and Secretary of State Antony Blinken have been in the region this week trying to extend the pause. On Wednesday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that they will resume their campaign to eliminate Hamas once this, quote, phase of returning our abductees is exhausted. So briefly, before we turn to the media bias, I just want to get quick reactions about how you're thinking about the temporary ceasefire, Liam. I mean, obviously, this is a a positive development. I think what's been, from a political standpoint, I think it's really uh, exposed a lot of the divides um, within, particularly on on the left, and done some real damage in a way that I think could be lasting, even if this, as the issue that's front and center in our politics sort of abates because it touched pre-existing fault lines that that cut across issues in, in some ways um, between sort of the, the neoliberal, more moderate center, centrist wing from from the left. And so I think that might be the long tail of this. Um, I think the the president got a lot of heat from all sides, but this is obviously a good outcome to have these images of people coming home. That's, that's unquestionably good. But I think the problem is you have this, this 
wound that's been opened up and I'm not quite sure how he puts it back together. And it has disproportionate importance in certain key uh, electoral battlegrounds. So that's what yeah. I'm watching. Yeah. And we'll get to that uh, a little bit later. Lucy, how did you react to just the temporary ceasefire first? I think it's really problematic the way in which conversation around ceasefire has become so hyper-politicized domestically. So like if you are, and I'm going to be hyperbolic deliberately here, but like if you are pro-ceasefire, then you are pro-Hamas, <laughs> right? Uh, and and that is a... Um, and, and if you are anti-ceasefire, then you are pro-mass killing of civilians. And war is very complicated. And I think most moderate Americans and most Americans in general, probably, who are following this, many of them probably feel like they can't participate in the dialogue in a way that's constructive because it is so unusually hyper-politicized that you basically have to be really fearful on, I think, either side uh, about how you talk about this. Uh, you know, I think that that the idea that you could both express concern over the <laughs> over civilian death toll and that you also could be very clear about the fact that Hamas is a terrorist organization should be a reasonable middle ground position that we could, many more of us could stake out and say publicly. John Favreau, who comes from Obama world, right, tweeted earlier this week, he said, and this was in reaction to some of the horrendous um, testimony at a at the Oakland City Council meeting. He said, I promise it's possible to call for a ceasefire and criticize the Israeli government for an appalling civilian death toll in Gaza without parroting Hamas propaganda that you got from some random social media accounts. Like, that is so infinitely reasonable, <laughs> but is not being said. And the other thing about the ceasefire piece that I think is really missing, and this is actually a piece of the, no question, totally agree that it has really, really revealed some problems on the left and that the left also has a disinformation problem itself, of especially young people, the I mean, flashback to a few weeks ago, the TikTok. Osama bin Laden letter to America stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's all whack, wacko, wacko, wacko. But the right also seems unwilling to acknowledge that maybe Netanyahu is is not all kind of like rainbows and butterflies. And in fact, the Israelis themselves are really pretty appalled by Benjamin Netanyahu and his approval rating is in the tank. He's doing terribly. So I hope that as this continues, of course, we want more hostages to be freed. We want all of the hostages to be freed. But I hope we can also enter into a phase of this conflict where there's more room for nuance. Yeah. I want to spend some time on what I think is a big contributing factor to the dysfunction of the discourse around this war, which is the way even what we, what we can call the mainstream media has been covering it. And one of the things that's been really striking um, has been the false equivalency people are drawing between the hostages Hamas is releasing and the convicted prisoners Israel is releasing as part of the deal. So over the weekend, the New York Times published a live update about one of the freed Palestinian prisoners and identified her as a disfigured woman whose case has become well-known. And she is obviously very facially disfigured. They did not include 
the fact that her facial scars were from detonating her car bomb and injuring a police officer. I listened to um, a conversation earlier this week uh, between Jimmy Weinstein and uh, Maddie Friedman, who was a reporter and editor for the AP in the Jerusalem Bureau uh, between 2006 and 2011. And he describes how Hamas's strategy has been, has always been to provoke a war with Israel. And then when they respond to get their friends in the West to cry genocide and foment a public backlash that acts as a break on Israel's ability to respond, which we have obviously seen play out now. Um, And he was an editor on a desk in Jerusalem at the end of 2008 when the first war between Hamas was happening. And one anecdote he tells is about a Palestinian reporter who told him that amid the fighting, Hamas fighters were dressed as civilians and that what they were doing was counting civilians, counting these Hamas fighters as civilians in their official death toll, which is a very important detail because the press was making the civilian death toll the center of their coverage. Uh, And those deaths were obviously being tallied by Hamas. An hour later, the same reporter called him back, asked him to remove that detail, and it was clear that someone had spoken to him and that he had sort of violated Hamas's rules about being there and about reporting. And so Matty removed the detail because he didn't want to endanger the reporter and suggested to the person in charge of the news desk that they include an editor's note that they were now conforming their coverage to Hamas censorship, which is the same thing they do when Israeli intelligence censors a news story or vets a news story. And he was overruled by this, about this request. But one of the most striking things about his account was how the staff at even the most trusted American outlets like the AP have made conscious editorial decisions to mislead their readers um, because they had already decided who was the good guy and who was the bad guy. Israel was the bad guy. So I want to run this clip um, of the conversations, about two minutes, and then I want to talk about how the media coverage of the war has impacted the bias, whether a lot of it was pre-existing or whether it's been uh, sort of created by the way it's been covered. The second part of it is that the part of the story that reporters are not being allowed to report is usually stuff that the reporters don't want to report anyway. Because for reporters, the story that they feel that they're supposed to report is a story about powerful Israelis abusing Palestinian civilians. So the existence of Hamas and Hamas military strategy and this incredible tunnel network that they've built and the way they use hospitals and their very impressive military achievements all of this is irrelevant to the story that they think is important. So they're being warned off parts of the story, but they tell themselves that it's not important anyway because it's not, it's not the story. So that's also part of it. So part of it is intimidation and part of it is ideology, but the upshot of it is that Western audiences, depending on mainstream media, I guess what we used to call the mainstream media, I'm not sure if that term makes sense anymore, but the, you know, the, the large numbers of people in the West who trust these organizations are being given a picture of reality that's false. And, and are having a very hard time understanding reality. And I think that if the Western press organizations had done their job and reported what Hamas was doing in Gaza over the past 10, 15 years, which is basically wiring Gaza like a suicide bomber, they've created a, a military landscape that is indistinguishable from the civilian landscape. And that means necessarily that when war breaks out, it's going to be a civilian disaster. The big Western press organizations have permanent operations in Gaza, and they've largely been happy to ignore it. So this attack on October 7th comes kind of comes out of nowhere. Uh, when if, if you've been covering the story as you should have been, Western audiences would have been much um, more capable of understanding that event and knowing where to put it. And you can see that millions of people in the West are quite baffled by what's going on and are reaching a series of completely incorrect conclusions. 
So Lucy and then Liam, I'm really curious. We've talked before about uh, that the the narrative, capital T, capital N, that maybe was pre-existing, and some of the tension here has been laid bare. But I want to question how much of the how much of the the reaction, the public reaction, has been because of how Western media, in particular, wire services, even um, have covered this and have been covering this conflict for so long. That's that's interesting. I, I guess one of the places it takes me, and you had mentioned earlier the New York Times headline of of the um, Palestinian prisoner who was released, Israel Jabis, and you um, were talking about how that headline, for example, did not mention um, that she had been uh, accused of and then, I believe, convicted of, yeah, convicted of... Um, a car bomb, right, of, of a deliberate terrorist act, let's say. And and I um I happened to read some Al Jazeera coverage of her. And in the Al Jazeera coverage, uh the there was a lot of coverage about the fact that while she was in um prison in Israel, that she had not that that uh requests for subsequent reconstructive surgery because as as part of this event she had this criminal act we believe she had had her her face was like she had second and third degree burns all over her body and the israeli government actually paid for her to have reconstructive surgery on on her face and maybe on other parts of her body but i was reading an article about how a, a request for a third surgery um like a reconstruction of her nose, and she does when you see her, she looks very messed up from this event, was denied. And so the article was about the incredible amount of mistreatment that she has endured while in captivity. And it it also, if you read this article, it also, the article was explaining, explaining, I'm putting in quotes, right? (laughs) Because this is the narrative that is presented in the article that she um, was the, just simply this woman, J- Jerusalem area woman who was moving items from her home to her car and there was a mechanical fault in the car and she lost control of the car and this horrible thing happened. And obviously the the accusations of this as a car bomb are ridiculous because the windows of the car never exploded, so it can't be. And this is, she's this wrongfully accused person. And I was thinking about how believable and clear this Al Jazeera piece was. And I I looked up Al Jazeera's circulation and Al Jazeera has, I mean, reaches hundreds of millions of households, right? Like Al Jazeera is a major, major purveyor of news to people throughout the world. And I was thinking about how the, and maybe I'm not really answering your question, but this is where it takes me. I was thinking about how, how, increasingly even uh, outlets themselves are not regional, right? There are American viewers and people in the West who listen to Al Jazeera, read Al Jazeera, and how much it's, yes, there maybe has been a failure of so-called Western media to cover this in a way that this would not be surprising to people, Western Europeans or Americans. But it's also even with different coverage, I don't think that that would solve these kinds of divides that we see among folks because 
it is it is such an extreme example of the issue that we've talked a lot about before of like that we don't even have a common set of facts anymore on a range of issues, small or large. And you see that unfold on a global scale. And then you see it take the form of these these really compelling anecdotes, right? Like of this of this woman, yeah. you know, you either think she's a criminal or a martyr, but the differences are so extreme. It's like, it's not the same person <laughs> that they're yeah. reporting on. Liam, if if it's okay, I want to bring people up to speed on the clip that men- Lucy mentioned earlier about the Oakland uh, City Council meeting. And then I want to put a finer point on this question. Um, here's, so uh, the, this is, the Oakland City Council meeting, Lucy mentioned, they held a special meeting to consider a motion calling for a permanent ceasefire uh, in the Israel-Hamas war. They met for six hours and took public comments from more than 250 people. And after the city, after the council members, Dan Kolb said, a substantial number of people were trying to justify or rationalize the Hamas mass murder on October 7th. Um, and he says, to me, that is so fringe and unconscionable and ridiculous Here's some of the lowlights from from that meeting. There's not been beheadings of babies and rapings. Israel murdered their own people on October 7th. Calling Hamas a terrorist organization is ridiculous, racist, and plays into genocidal propaganda that is flooding our media and that we should be doing everything possible to combat. I support the right of Palestinians to resist occupation, including through Hamas, the armed wing of the unified Palestinian resistance. As an Arab, asking with this context to condemn Hamas is very anti-Arab racist. The notion that this was a massacre of Jews is a fabricated narrative. Many of those killed on October 7th, including children, were killed by the IDF. An amendment condemning Hamas is bald propaganda meant to... Thank you. Your time is up. To hear them complain about Hamas violence is like listening to a wife beater complain when his wife finally stands up and fights back. Question. Did anyone else notice that those who oppose this resolution are old white supremacists? There's been a lot of atrocity propaganda ranging from claims of beheaded babies to mass rape. Hamas is not a terrorist organization just because the U.S. and Israel um, deems it so. Hamas is a resistance organization that is fighting for the liberation of Palestinian people and their land. So some of those are very clearly sort of shocking and fringe comments. And some of those, I think, probably represent a broad undercurrent uh, of sentiment on some some part of the left. And so to put a finer point on the question, I've been wondering how much of this is shaped by the media coverage we've been discussing and how much of this is coming from a pre-existing um, sort of idea about oppressor-oppressed morality uh, which we've talked about a lot on the show, um, and about not just, you know, like this is causing backlash against not just Israel, but the United States and President Biden, uh, and is really wounding him electorally. So I guess that's the finer point of the question. How, how, these are, to me, there's probably many other factors, but these two are big ones. And I wonder, how do you weight them, I suppose? Well, to me, I think it's really, I mean, number one, <clears throat> If we think about what's going on there, what's captured there, it's a distillation of almost a caricature of what you'd expect a Bay Area City Council, yeah, you know, area right. of grievances to look like, particularly when there's this, this, you know, acute international situation happening that actually plays into old fault lines. I don't know how much, I mean, you know, there, you talked about the sort of capital T capital and the narrative I think there, there's a, a long history of this that most, and this is part of the asymmetry, most people who are living their lives aren't 
particularly attuned to it, but high information voters that are the people that go to city council meetings, that are people that, that are posting online about things, have a totally different um, frame of reference have a totally different uh, level of granularity with the way they understand things. And they also have much more powerful feelings um, on, on media, on media coverage, and they're primed to, to trust or not trust certain sources. So I think that's fundamentally where what this strikes me as is the legacy media doing their darndest to play their traditional role of the neutral arbiters objectively calling balls and strikes with the, the little wrinkles you mentioned that, that we heard in the clip of people trying to navigate some of these things while, while keeping the straight face and not trying to be biased. I think you have so much cynicism on parts of the left and parts of the right who have just rejected that entirely, don't believe it for, for various reasons, and have not, not only do they have their own source of information, which is how you get that feedback loop of the things that they were parroting, um, but but they take anything that's said by some of these legacy organizations as somehow jaundiced or you know just flat out lies, and it and it reinforces that cynicism, and and it curdles into something really ugly that we see playing out online, and it filters down to again low information voters who are who are engaged and primed by this information. People who'd never heard about Gaza or Hamas before who suddenly have very informed opinions and will do TikToks on it. So I think that's this, the information asymmetry and the sort of good and bad faith asymmetry is so important here. And it's really hard to solve because you have to, you, you have to feel for people who are, you know, old school journalists who are just trying to do their job. And this model of journalism doesn't really work for the moment. And I don't know how people, I don't know how you fix that because people, they don't have the credibility with the people who matter. I mean, I think most people are, are tuned out to the point where they'll maybe just get their certain sources and not be, be tuning out the noise. So, and we, that, that leads to the other issue is we are talking about a discourse that most people aren't even aware of. You know, it's, it is, this is on fire over here, but your average person who's just taking their kids to practice and, you know, uh, you know, going about their day isn't worried about these things. And so to have two completely different worlds, I suppose three, um, where, you know, you've have strong feelings over here, strong feelings over there and everybody else just going, Hmm, Oh, I'm glad some people got released. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Go ahead, Lucy. It, it also makes it really hard. This piece of our current information landscape really makes it hard to gauge scale of problem. I was thinking about how the intersection of social media and and the new media landscape of people being able to not only post their own messages directly and generate an audience, but also to repost content, like citizen journalism kind of stuff. Obviously, the Oakland City Council meeting is a slightly different issue because it does sound like about a third of the people who were there to have, make testimony were saying those things, which is a lot. That's a lot. I mean, Oakland also has kind of reputation for this sort of stuff already. So take that with a grain of salt. But it's concerning, no question. But I was thinking about how, I mean, a lot of people who went to large universities probably have the memory of the experience of walking through your college campus and seeing, for example, a non-college affiliated protester there, right, who are like standing with a sign. Maybe it's to tell you that like you're going to go to hell because you are considering an abortion, whatever, right? Maybe it's some other social justice cause, whatever. 
but just whacked out people and crazy, crazy people. And that we didn't, in my day, in the early 2000s, (laughs) we didn't pull out our smartphones and take video of those people and post it. But now, not only are those people still doing that and getting recorded and that content is being shared, but also some of them have Twitter accounts themselves and they post their stuff that is crazy. And then a whole bunch of other people, whether they're supporters, but often detractors, repost it to, as an example of like, look how nuts this person is. This is really, really concerning. And it means that even we ourselves, I think mostly in an attempt to dialogue and be responsible, responsible people are amplifying the crazy people, even though, you know, in the previous paradigm, you just sort of walk by and are like, okay, man, like you need help or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. The feedback loop is, is, clear and 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 it you know everybody plays their role and and it and it just amplifies um and it's not the same thing but it but it does what you were just saying kind of reminds me of the flap that you had a few weeks ago where uh it was the Osama bin Laden like the the letter where a handful of tiktokers discovered it and there was that a little bit kind of weird rote thing that happened with I don't know, yeah. hundreds of yeah. people but then it gets turned into a twitter yeah, thread of people exactly. going can you believe this What's and then happening? it turns into yeah. a much bigger yes, thing because because what happened in that it, it, you're right that's a, such a good example because it had very little engagement and then Yashar Ali who I actually think has been great in his in in how he has brought a lot of balanced information to Twitter around this conflict, but he reposted a compilation of those people reading, talking about, oh my God, I see Osama bin Laden in a totally different light. He has such a massive following that his repost, and his repost was like, this is egregious. His repost actually then caught the attention of people who would fall into that previous category. And that's how it snowballed and then suddenly was going crazy on TikTok. That was, that's a perfect case study, Liam. Okay, before we dive into these uh, last two segments, I just want to preface <laughs> the conversation because we've gotten a couple of emails from listeners who are n- not happy with us bashing President Biden as they see it. And I want to say a couple of things. I think it's important and healthy for our politics when people can disagree. I think it's necessary. Sometimes I disagree with the president. Sometimes our guests do. Sometimes I disagree with our guests. And sometimes they disagree with each other. And we try really hard to stay respectful of each other when we disagree and not devolve into throwing mud. But speaking for our team, our concern is rooted in the terror we have at the prospect of a second Trump administration. And the deck is very clearly stacked against Democrats heading into the 2024 election. The Senate map is tough. Democrats have to win the popular vote by at least like four points to win the Electoral College. And it's going to feel incredibly unfair that Democrats are going to need to shelve policy that they think is good and right because the Republican Party has lost its mind. But that is the situation that we're currently in. Uh, As Jonathan Last of the Bulwark put it, quote, there is no cavalry coming over the hill, no mass of Republican voters and politicians who watch Trump's attempted coup and will say never again, even if it means voting for Joe Biden this one time. So uh, when our team sees what we think is a strategic error or a choice that could hurt Joe Biden's chances in a rematch with Donald Trump, We always talk about including it in the roundup because pretending everything is great and the world is great and everyone thinks the country is headed in the right direction won't help when people go to the ballot box in less than a year. So um, maybe it can be uncomfortable to hear and we don't get any kind of joy from talking about where we disagree with the president. Uh, If the 2024 election 
comes down to a choice between Joe Biden and Donald Trump, I think our team thinks Joe Biden is the better option. But if we want to avoid Trump winning in 2024, which is a very real, very scary to me possibility, we need a lot of other people to see him as the better option too. So that is my uh, throat clearing for the next couple of segments where we're going to talk about some challenges in front of the president. So for about five months, Joe Biden's team has been trying to position him to run on his economic record and his policy accomplishments. Um, between late June and November 1st, Biden has used the term Bidenomics 101 times in speeches. On Wednesday, the president traveled to Pueblo, Colorado to tout the Inflation Reduction Act uh, at the world's largest wind tower manufacturer. Just hours earlier, the Department of Commerce released updated numbers showing their economic growth from July to September was greater than their earlier estimates. So the Biden team is now taking those numbers and saying unemployment remains fairly low. And while the job growth was slower in October than September, the economy still added 150,000 jobs. So those things are all still true. But there is a reality on the ground that is being glossed over, and that is that living in 2023 is a lot more expensive than it was in 2020. Full stop. That's not in dispute. And while the rate at which money is losing value has slowed, now this is really important. I've gone on a tear before about inflation, the CPI numbers reported by the Bureau of Labor Statistics as being essentially manipulated by the government to depress the impression that money is worth less than it was before. That is all true. We can have that conversation uh, now or another time if you want. But um, the reality is uh, money's worth less. And CBS News' Money Watch released a report that on average, Americans need an additional $11,400 to afford the same standard of living in October of 2023 compared to January 2021. If you live in Arkansas, you need $8,500 more. That's the lowest increase in Colorado, where Biden was just touting Bidenomics. You need an additional $15,000 a year just to maintain your standard of living. So people are spending more and saving less than they were two years ago. Evidence is stacking up that they're also drawing down on their existing savings cushions to maintain their consumption. Uh, there's new polling from Morning Consult, so take it with a grain of salt, showing that one in five adults don't know how long their savings will carry them, up from 15% in July of 2022. And uh, Morning Consult senior economist Jesse Wheeler told Axios that the growing cohort that doesn't know how long they can live off their savings is a sign that, quote, people are feeling pretty uncertain about what lies ahead. Uh, and finally, Gallup polling out on Tuesday shows that just 32% of Americans approve of President Biden's handling of the economy. So here's a question, I think, for the table. Why is the Biden team choosing to make economy the economy a central part of their campaign when all of the data indicates voters, especially voters he needs to win over, trust Trump on that issue more than they trust Biden. What's going on, Lucy? Well, I too share the sense that there's actually, it, it is um, ad, ad, advice, armchair advice to the Biden administration from, say, never Trumpers is, uh, is extended from a place of um, of support, right? And and instead, it's often treated yeah. like it's uh, like you know somehow we're all secretly conspiring in favor of a second Trump term, which is, would be <laughs> mind boggling. I think that the Biden administration 
thinks that they, or the Biden reelect, thinks that they have to be out front on this issue because it is going to be such a, a strong issue and message for Republicans that if they're not out on front it's, it, of it, it seems like they're running away from it. And I think that that's part of the calculus. Um, I think that in most polling, um, typically, there is a perception, a cultural perception in this country that Republicans are more trustworthy on the economy. So if you and, and that they take better care of the economy, that they are, you know, things are better financially under a Republican administration. And so if you start with that table set, you can see that the Biden administration is trying to overcome that. Right. So I think I don't really understand the messaging around something like Bidenomics, but that is what it is. Um, but that there's they just are sort of taking for granted that that's what they're up against. I think that one of the things that is kind of troubling, though, is that even the messaging as recently as new messaging this week seems to suggest that the Biden administration is going to lean into the same kind of, I don't mean to sound like a kind of big business hack, but that they are willing to lean into the same kind of toxic populism that the Trump administration and the Trump campaign and Republicans now have done against corporate America. Um, and and that this is like, if if you, you know, yes, okay, it's cost 11,000 and change more to live your life, but really that's because of the like big bad business, right? B- Biden tweeted, Thursday morning. Let me be clear to any corporation that hasn't brought their prices back down, even as inflation has come down. It's time to stop the price gouging. Give American consumers a break. There is some data to suggest that some companies are (laughs) behaving in a way where they are choosing to increase prices or maintain increased prices because they can (laughs) instead of bringing them back down. But that is a fundamental misrepresentation of what is happening in the economy, right? Like looking at data on on real wages, that reveals the true story of, of what's happening and the fact that even as inflation comes down, it's not coming down fast enough and hard enough to make up for that. And so, yes, sort of to bookend what you said, this is just strategic advice <laughs> for how to message in a way that is credible and believable and doesn't completely erode our whole discourse so that both sides are doing this thing where we are just pr- pushing this completely phony narrative that this is just like we're all at the mercy of big bad business for example well here's what they're up against and this is this is a tweet from on Thanksgiving or the day before Thanksgiving from Jason Furman who is uh who is the, the chairman of the economic advisor uh, for uh, for for President Obama and he said the cost of a Thanksgiving dinner in 2023, it's a 4.5% uh, decrease for year over year from last year. That's good, right? That's what they want to tout. Inflation's down. Compared to the year before, it's a 15% increase. I'm rounding. F- from 2020, it's a 30% increase. So that's that's like the Trump world. And that's that's the disconnect they're trying to bridge. And actually, these numbers are are low relative because because the price dropped in the in the sort of out years. So this is actually a bigger to your point. I mean, inflation snowballs even yes, it, it does. The, it's a one way ratchet. It's Things a one way ratchet. Exactly. That's right. Because yeah. So that goes to Lucy's point, which is they've spent years saying, "Don't worry about this. Don't pay attention to it. it's transitory, et cetera. We got it under control." They realize that okay, we're out over our skis. We have to figure out a way to 
account for this. Well, we're going to pass some legislation that we call the Inflation Reduction Act. Inflation is reducing. We pat ourselves on the back. Which is not that. that does, and does, that doesn't match <laughs> perception. Right. But what does match perception is what Lucy said, which is, hey, if we can play into this sense and this cynicism that that this is all just big corporations, well, heck, that's that's what we need to harness um, and it, it sort of uh, inoculates us from any culpability because remember, this is a, a, a significant chunk of this is about the the juicing of the economy. And look, if you ask Fed watchers, it seems like we might be in for a soft landing. There might be rate cuts around the corner. Uh, so maybe they handle this as well as they could have. But I think everybody understands that pumping trillions into the economy at that point while maybe not foreseeable, certainly led to uh, a, a something made, that made the cost of living much more uh, expensive. Now, why are they doing this? Why are they leaning this message? I think there's a couple of things going on. Number one, if you, even at a point where we all agree Democrats are winning special elections, odd year elections because of energy around, uh, you know, Dobbs and abortion, things like that. If you ask people what they care about, that's mm-hmm. still pretty low on the list. All the issues that that Democrats like lead on mm-hmm. in terms of trust, they're pretty far down the list. What voters say they want, and this is part of the issue, is voters are just, you know, unreliable narrators. Yep. But they'll still tell you that jobs and the economy and inflation, that's what they care about. So look, if you're just reading the polls and like running a campaign strategy, well, I guess that's what they want to hear about. So we have to figure out a way to play into that. One way you can do that, and then the other piece of this is, I think there's a sense by Biden people, by Biden administration, they're underrated, they're undervalued, people aren't giving them credit. So I think the Bidenomics piece is, well, we're not getting credit for this. We need to take credit. And, and there's also this disconnect where I think there's an assumption that, well, voters are just ignorant of this. They just mm. need to be informed of this. Mm. If they know what there we've been a lot doing, they'll be happy. And I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of voter psychology because they don't trust that if if it was done and you can convince them it was done they probably don't necessarily believe it was worth doing because even if things pull well hey would you what could i interest you in this thing that i say is good well that sounds good well by the way we did this last year well if it didn't if if they haven't internalized that in a positive way i'm not sure you're going to convince them or persuade them that actually the things they they think are bad are actually good. And, and so I think that's the fundamental disconnect. They've tried it and they do have a good story to tell in certain ways. And I think that's why Biden's been out there in certain districts, in certain areas, touting, you know, the onshoring of jobs, the the shovels in the ground, the projects and investments that have been announced related to uh, a poorly named law. I mean, fundamentally, the the message he wants to be telling is, is manufacturing and industrial policy in the U.S. that has been um, unlocked by virtue of his uh, really energy tax policies, and that's and the Chips Act, and the Chips Act exactly. And these are things that that um, you know are have to be an important part of his of his campaign, but they have to be careful about being too triumphant about this because that's not where the voters are. But if you can, you can show them jobs, you can show them actual tangible results. Um, I think that's the best way you can do this. But look, you're not going to, you're not going to win the race that way. You have to be able to tell a positive story, but you need to contrast that with what, you know, what the next four years of Trump looks like. It's going to be much more effective, particularly in the mood of this electorate to paint the picture of what Republicans would do if you gave them power. Yeah, I think that uh, to put a fine point on all of that, it's a choice versus a referendum. They're running a referendum campaign right now when this really needs to be a choice campaign. Exactly. Um, And the question I think remains, 
are they going to be able to put together an anti-Trump coalition that is that is a winning anti-Trump coalition uh, this time around when you actually have a record behind you as president and people aren't sort of super happy with your performance? So I think that's the the, the big question. Lucy, anything to add on this before we move forward? No, I I think what Liam is saying makes a lot of sense. And I think that there are, it's it's well put, that there are ways that Biden and his team can promote the things that have actually been wins without getting sucked into this, these other types of talking points that they are going to lose on. Let's go over to Congress. Border security. This week, the Senate is trying to hammer out a deal to toughen border security in exchange for President Biden's $106 billion supplemental funding request for aid to Ukraine, Israel, and Taiwan. So these talks are focusing on three big issues. One is asylum standards, which is when migrants apply for asylum, uh, they're screened to determine if they have what's called credible fear, that they will be persecuted or tortured if they're returned to their country of origin. Uh, The Wall Street Journal reports that the threshold uh, is roughly a 10% chance of persecution. Republicans want that raised. Uh, The second is extending the number of, quote, safe third countries where asylum seekers would be required to seek protection first if they pass through on the way to the U.S. border. And then the third is parole authority. Presidents currently have the authority to temporarily admit people to the U.S. for humanitarian or other reasons, and Republicans want to limit that authority. And right now, Politico's reporting that Democrats seem to be resigned to increasing the asylum threshold, uh, deeply hostile, in quotes, <laughs> to changes within parole authority and somewhere in the middle on safe third countries. Um, progressive activists, they say, hate all of this. And it's interesting because what's on the table during these negotiations is different from what it has been in the past. Uh, for years, any negotiation on tough border policies would have been paired with immigration measures. And the left flank of the Democratic Party's tried for a long time to pair tougher border policies with progressive immigration measures, uh, including a path to citizenship for dreamers. And now the equation is Republicans get border security and Democrats get Ukraine aid, which is a bit uh, asymmetrical. So, Liam, you mentioned this, I think, a couple roundups uh, ago um, about the different trade-offs Democrats were going to have to make when it came to immigration policy and in particular border security. So why don't you start here? How do you read this change um, in the equation? How should we expect it to shape other negotiations around border security? So this is really tough. And it does go back. I mean, it did remind me when you were getting that lead in of what we talked about some months ago, uh, which is just fundamentally how hard this problem. I mean, there are lots of problems like this, but immigration is so tough to deal with because There are lots of reasons why the big picture comprehensive stuff is impossible, but but because it's attractive in terms of all the things people want to deal with, having something that is achievable and incremental is also unsatisfying. So, um, you know, pairing Mm. it with something else that's hard doesn't necessarily make (laughs) it easier. Remember, I mean, fundamentally, what's the problem that you're trying to solve? The problem you're trying to solve is that Ukraine funding, which at one time was and, and maybe should be just something that both sides can agree on, that is suddenly very polarizing, not partisan per se, but there's a significant chunk of the Republican Party that is vocally against it. There is the quiet, meaty part of the party that just doesn't want to get caught in the crossfire. Um, And there is a, I mean, the subtext of this is so rich in terms of of the president, of impeachment, of the Biden crime. I mean, there's just so much going on there in a tangled web. 
the fascinating piece of this is you have a leader in the Senate who, for whom this is a legacy issue. Um, he really, really wants this to happen, but he also knows that he can only lead this conference so far. And so what you're dealing with, you're sort of building a Rube Goldberg machine to get around the complicated politics of passing Ukraine funding. And it really is this Rube Goldberg contraption because, again, like adding immigration yeah. to this mix does not make it easier. Yeah. But when increasingly, and I think this, this is in every context, when I'm talking to people on the Hill about moving anything, there is more than ever an attitude of well, what's in it for us? What's the win? What's what's in it for Republicans? And at least this introduces the idea that okay, you, the Ukraine funding that's a that's a Democrat thing. That's a Biden thing. That's a that's a you know that's that's for the left. What's in it for us? So that's what you're hearing rhetorically, at least from the Chip Roy's of the world, from you know the immigration hardliners. The Senate plays the role. They're the sort of saucer that that cools everything. You do have good faith actors there trying to come up with a deal of what can theoretically pass. I think that's a genuine effort that that could get 60 votes in the Senate. The problem is, and, and, and the dynamics you're seeing between the two chambers is, I think there was an attitude earlier in the Congress that like, if the House is dysfunctional or even just refuses to go along with things, they're going to get rolled by the Senate because Mitch McConnell is going to make a deal with Chuck Schumer and they're just going to send things over. That's obviously not mm. the, that's yep. not the paradigm that's operative here. McConnell's being very deliberate about what, the market can bear where he's capable of leaving his com leading his conference. Um, and it's not as simple as like, well, I can find 10 friends and we're going to go do this. No, you need to have half the conference. You need to have overwhelming support or else you, you know, you can only go that, go to that well one time. Um, so I think that's the, the needle they're trying to thread here is you can see how a deal for immigration that Democrats could accept could be acceptable to Senate Republicans. The question is, are House Republicans looking to get to yes? And all this is taking place in the context of a, a fraught leadership dynamic with a new speaker who does not have a well of, of goodwill or, or credibility at this point. Uh, if anything, he's sort of, you know, the honeymoon's over. That was sort of the shot across the bow yesterday. So I think that's the question is, if you're Mike Johnson you're looking at the Freedom Caucus and sort of figuring out those signals. Johnson is, is screaming, you know, as, as, as loudly as he can. If the Senate sends me something that is bigger, you know, that is this big omni supplemental, it's not going to pass. I can't pass it. So I think you got to take him at face value there. But the question is, what does the deal look like? And, and what, you know, Biden wants, well, we're, we're doing border. We're, we're throwing money at the border. But if you, if you talk to the House guys, they don't want border money. They want policy changes. And I think Democrats would say, well, we're open to policy changes, but are we talking about the same thing here? And as we talked about some weeks ago, there are definitely things that would be politically advantageous to have happen, maybe not to own, but to have happen for Biden, for certain red district Democrats and red state Democrats that they'd like to happen but it has to be a Republican ask. So there's this very complicated dynamic. I, I am frankly very skeptical of it happening. That I they'll think get it, the deal? I think if it, 
it can't be a smooth deal. I can't see this happening in like a linear fashion. I think things probably have to fall apart before they get put back together. Like I, I truly, I think, I think that's, I don't think there's a, a mood in the house right now where they just say, oh yeah, that sounds good. I think things have to get worse before they get better. Um, but it really is a matter of are House Republicans trying to get to yes? Mm. And here's the interesting thing that the Freedom Caucus guys have boxed themselves in over and over and over and set up this, this model where if things, and this has been true since June, if things have to become law, if things need to get to Joe Biden's desk and things have to happen, they don't go through the regular order process of, you know, you, the, the, the majority brings it to the floor by supporting the rule. They've, since June, they've just said, no, we're not going to vote for the rule for anything. To the extent they have, it's been for dead end appropriations bills that they won't support on the floor. But anything that has to become law needs to have 100 to 150 Democratic votes because it needs 290 votes overall to get two-thirds of the chamber. So they've put themselves in a position where they have less power than ever. So if, if Johnson decides, well, uh, they, come at me, basically. Then, then he could definitely decide to put that on the floor. It's, it's really this question, not of could it pass the House? It's how willing is he to put something on the floor that is provocative to these members that may or may not be thinking about coming after him? Okay. Lucy, you looked distressed a minute ago, and what I was thinking about is the, the, the political goal in all of this. Um, one of the things I think Republicans have used very effectively is the optics of the very bad situation at the border, but the optics are very bad. And uh, I think Chris Dahl, uh, who, who was it that put this recently? I think it was Chris Dahlwalt that basically um, Republicans want to talk about this problem all the time and Democrats never want to talk about it. Um, I <laughs> the, the incentives within the Democratic coalition make it harder for candidates uh, to talk about increasing border security. But David Frum wrote... If liberals insist that only fascists will enforce borders, then voters will hire fascists to do the job liberals refuse to do. So when you look ahead to next November, and we've just talked about some problems on the economy, but if Trump and Biden are the nominees, Biden's going to need to hang on to the Trump-Biden voters, the former Republican voters, that small portion of the Republican electorate that moved the margin enough in 2020 to get him to the White House. How... How do you think this in, this impacts the incentive structure to actually try to do something here? Well, I think Democrats have a very high incentive to do something and Republicans have a low incentive to do something about the border because the longer that the problem is perpetuated and polling and public sentiment is on Republican side on this issue, the better off it looks for Republicans. Also, tying something like aid to Ukraine um, and, you know, an, an aid package to Ukraine and Israel, yeah. which Republicans, you know, now a lot of hardliners don't want aid to Ukraine. If there's a deal done, which also takes the wind out of their sails, just in the same way that, for example, a federal um, uh, codifying row federally takes the wind out of the sails of Democrats, right? Like they also, federal Democrats do not have an incentive to do that because then it ceases to be an election at the, it seems to be an issue mm -hmm. at the ballot box. I, I, um, this is, I was, I was thinking as we got into this topic, I thought maybe like we need more nuance is, is like the, the common thread through all these topics today. It's like also high degree of cynicism. So sorry, <laughs> bringing the cynicism yep. once again. On the politics of the border, 
And I grew up in a border state. I spend a lot of time in a border state. Like it's, it is true that there's a perception of people in the Southwest, especially that Washington has no idea what it's like, that they're not doing enough about this. On the other hand, there's also a culture and a perception of, you know, it's different if you grew up with dreamers and you have a different experience of what, of what that those Americans who are just like you are like. And so it is an issue where we really need more nuance. Someone said to me the other day, if I just wish that the Biden administration, and this is a person who is inclined to vote for Biden, said, I just really think the Democrats and the Biden administration need to acknowledge the border problem more significantly. Like they need to be more open and upfront about the border problem. And I get that. But I also, when I look at the actual policies enacted by the Biden administration, the stuff that they are not talking about is that they actually have been pretty aggressive (laughs) in border enforcement. And so it also leaves me feeling like, is there anything that the Biden administration could say that would make a difference? I'm not sure. And I know that's a little bit depressing, but I especially started feeling this way after I saw some data from the Cato Institute um, a few weeks ago, which essentially was data that showed that people were more likely to be released under in the Trump years than under Biden. Like in absolute terms, the Biden Department of Homeland Security is removing three and a half times as many people per month as Trump's DHS did. During the Trump administration, DHS made 1.4 million arrests, what it calls encounters, and then account encounters lead to either expulsions or apprehensions, right? Like expulsions are you're sent back to either your home country or the last country that you came in from. We presume the vast majority of cases that would be Mexico, or you're apprehended and you have to like wait for what uh, you know, like a a a, a try a, a, a to be before a, a body to decide, okay, what do we do with you? Okay. So during the Trump administration, DHS made 1.4 million arrests in fiscal years 2019 and 2020. That's a period of 24 months. Of those people arrested, only 47% were removed as of December 31st, 2021, which includes people arrested by Trump and removed by Biden. And 52% were released into the US. Under Biden, DHS has made over 5 million arrests in its first 26.3 months, 26.3 months. So compare 5 million to 1.4, and it removed nearly 2.6 million, 51%, while releasing only 49%. In other words, the Trump DHS removed a minority of those arrested, while the Biden DHS removed a majority. Biden managed to increase the removal share while also increasing the total removals by a factor of 3.5. It's a reminder that... It's a good talking uh, point. It's super, <laughs> yes. Also, yeah. even all the other sort of like, um, the other issues that kind of um, branch off from this, uh, one of them being like fentanyl, right? Like more fentanyl seized at the border might mean that we are doing a better job, but that is a constant talking point. It's like, oh my God, so much more fentanyl is being seized at the border. That might mean that we are doing a better job at enforcement, Right. Similarly, like being like, oh my God, so many more people are flowing over the world. If if we are using metrics like encounters, if there are more, then then maybe that means we're doing a better job of enforcement. 
the trickiest part of this that is a piece that the Biden administration is not so hot on talking about is asylum seekers. And I think it should be noted, first of all, from a policy standpoint, the Biden administration is like basically doing what the Trump administration is doing, had had been doing, right? Like just if you come over illegally, you stop being eligible for asylum. And they they basically, you know, zhuzhed up a Trump era rule that had made a lot of people mad. And then they reissued a, a rule earlier this year that was basically a slightly less uh, aggressive, but functionally the same rule around what happens to asylum seekers. They are not talking about their record because they're afraid of their base, actually. Like, they are afraid of what will happen with their base. And that's really interesting. But it also is reflective of an issue that is like another one of these kind of like boogeyman issues that we can't really have a, a, a clear conversation about, which is just sort of how problematic the asylum program is. Of course, we all want, for example, for people who are being, you know, like, threatened because they're gay or, you know, like might be killed or they're political prisoners or they're, um, you know, like suffering at the hands of a, of a domestic abuser or they're being raped, like they're being injured, all of this stuff. Obviously, we want to treat those people with a high degree of compassion, but it just is the case that an asylum program that is a big tent incentivizes people coming over the border to, tell, to say the magic words. Right, right. But no one can say, well, I shouldn't be extreme. We're saying it on this podcast, but that is a yeah. perfect example of the kind of thing where we then, again, like on a lot of these issues we've talked about, you basically, you're for asylum seekers or you're against asylum seekers, right? right. Like you're for saving the, you know, like the uh, transgender you care about humans or you'd hate and them. the women right. who yeah. are rape victims or you don't. <laughs> Right. And and right. and so it's just like another one of these. This is I don't think my answer has been that satisfying, Ron. But I both No, it's very I guess, insightful. I, I both I feel like the Biden administration couldn't both both in some ways is kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't because of the incentives. But also yeah. that that it's we have to break up this tension around how we talk about some of these micro issues that are associated with the border issue. Yeah. So if I could boil this down, because I think actually this applies to a lot of things across the board, the Biden administration, or let's say the Biden campaign anyway, is afraid of their base on how they would react if they were to begin talking about things that are broadly popular with the American public, but uh, but that he has a good record on. For example, you just talked about how he has been better on this issue in particular than, than Trump has. And, you know, if you, if you boil immigration down to sort of the problem at the border, a low, medium, even high information border sees, high information voter sees dysfunction at the border as a, as a signal of either incompetence or malice on the part of the U.S. government. And they want it fixed, right? It's embarrassing. They see it not, uh, they see it as a problem that needs to be fixed and, and it's not being fixed. And if you were to simply talk about your, your posture towards securing the border, how how much does it matter that his base is going to be upset versus the the number of voters he would win over as a result in the general election? So he doesn't have to worry about a primary effectively. You're sort of you're, that that to me says we're more afraid of our hyperactive base 
than we are uh, of them not not showing up to vote than we are of them being motivated to vote against Trump and coming to the polls, right? You're you're sort of banking on, uh, they need to bank on them being more upset at Trump than disappointed with Biden on policy. So I just wonder, like, how boxed in is he really from a political standpoint on things that are broadly popular with the American public, but that he doesn't want to talk about with the, you know, because of fear of his base retaliating? I think there are places he could go, but this goes back to that, like, what does the deal look like? Like, House Republicans want HR2, which has just, it's just, not, it's not a, it's not something that can happen. And so the question is, will they settle for anything less? Because I think, again, Biden and Dems could accept certain policy changes and actually probably to your point, like it would be politically beneficial to them to, to go along with them. They just can't see it as, it has to be a Republican thing that they're just sort of acquiescing to because it was important to make the broader deal work. So there's a very weird kind of arm's length dynamic going on there. Again, I think it comes down to knowing Republicans, knowing that it's probably better to have the issue yep. of immigration than to solve this. Which piece is of the, the story issue. of the issue of immigration no, like, forever. And, and kind right? of everything. Kind of everything. The <laughs> other thing is, you know, this is this is related to your point of like, are you do you need to to placate the base yep. or you know, I think this goes to I mean and this goes to fundamentally like who the anti-Trump coalition is so, and I, I know I talked about this in, in the last context of our immigration con our conversation. I think so the, the lens on so much of our politics in the, in the Trump era and post Trump era has been a fundamentally moral lens that an immigration gets, you know, to your point, it should be just a competence issue. It should be just like, can we make the trains run on time? But so much of it has, has been viewed as this truly moral right. issue and so anything that's seen as remotely punitive is bad. And the only right and just thing to do is to treat these people in a, in a you know, a, 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 as forgiving a manner as possible, I suppose, whatever that looks like. Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week, let's talk about what we are watching anywhere it falls on the radar. Lucy, what'd you bring? Well, as I told you earlier, I had a really good <laughs> under the radar story earlier this week, and I can't remember it. And it's been driving me crazy. It was haunting me all night last night. So I have another. But if I think of that one, I'm going to I'm going to post okay. it and I'll I'll good. tag politicology. Good. Um, good. One thing that I do think has percolated a little bit, but it just goes to me. It goes to show how um, like creepy little startup entities are, um, is that there was news this week about a woman who went before a school board in Texas, and she was in public testimony talking about how reading a scholastic book had caused her, I think as an 11-year-old, had caused her to become addicted to pornography. And um, she was talking about a scholastic book in particular um, that included the phrase, quote, a single kiss. And she said that the book enticed her so much that she, quote, looked for other books that gave me pleasure, which led to internet searches. And so um, she's now 20. Um, but but by the time she was 13, she just had this debilitating porn addiction um, that became sort of like life-threatening um, because of this single book. The book is called Drama. It's a scholastic book that features a picture of two characters kissing. Um, and then she said that 
getting rid of scholastic books in their book fairs will protect kids. Remember book fairs as kids? I mean, that, yeah, that was course. fun, right? Like that was like you got you like were, a free pizza me, like or something. I remember you like, go and be like the gym yeah. would be taken over anyway. So um, it turns out actually that this same woman is a PR person for an entity called Brave Books, which is a conservative publishing company um, that has uh, that is a spinoff of um of of some other entities and is also connected to an entity called Skytree Book Fairs and Skytree Book Fairs is this entity that basically has been set up and is closely connected to it is like a new scholastic competitor um but this it's it's closely connected to a big group of right-wing Christian publishers and in fact the person running this Skytree Book Fairs group was previously like an executive assistant to the Brave Books people. And so they are going around and school school districts around the country are hearing public testimony and voting to cancel their scholastic book fairs. It doesn't, this isn't really about whether you like scholastic or not. Yeah. I like them as a kid. But in favor of these other alternate book fairs, which are these new entities pushed by this corporate body that is basically part of a kind of shadowy network of right-wing Christian publishers. Um, and I, I've i been, Ron, my mom and I have been talking a lot this week about um, <laughs> about your interview of uh, Matthew Taylor, uh, which caused her to go really deep in a lot of this stuff. And so oh, we have been talking good. a lot about this stuff. And this little anecdote just reminds me of just the tentacles of this piece of that political ecosystem. And it's a thing to watch out for because you can see in the context of this woman, this young woman who came before this public hearing, it seems quite innocent, right? It seems legitimate. Like this woman is flagging a real anecdote about how some book was, you know, caused her to have a porn addiction, but it actually is part of this deeper underbelly that is trying to just reimagine how we even how we even provide books to children in schools. So that was, I went on longer than I wanted, but. That's good. Yeah, it's good. You're a book banner. No, you're a book banner. No, you're <laughs> a book banner. Yeah. Liam, what'd you bring? My look ahead goes back to actually what we were talking about before, which is kind of related to the broader Bidenomics banner, which is um, Biden is coming up on a moment where uh, all of the implementation of his big laws are coming due. We've spent this last year um, at the agency level, trying to figure out how we're going to make some of these things work. Okay, great. On paper, this does these things, but but people waiting to put shovels in the ground are waiting for rules. And so, where's the money going to go? We're about to see in the next couple of weeks. We've started to see the first tranche right before Thanksgiving on one of the big energy credits. This is probably the easy one, uh, the investment tax credit. But we're about to see a spate of highly anticipated regulations on the hydrogen production tax credit, the uh, uh, energy. Uh, uh, the sort of the production tax credit for um, like solar related and, and, and renewable energy related things. Basically all this money, the billions sitting on the sidelines waiting to see where they're going to put this money all rides on how these rules come out. And on the one hand, Biden needs these things to work. He needs to juice this and, and, and really get businesses investing all these things going for to meet his climate um, goals Uh Politically, he needs this to work to go out and show off all the great things that are happening. Uh, he needs it f to meet the regulatory um, rules he's putting into place because they all sort of interact. 
But the other piece of the tension is that the green groups who were cut out of the deal at the end of the day when Manchin was making this deal with Schumer and Wyden, they want a bite at the apple. And so they're trying, John Podesta is trying to play, you know, the sort of, <laughs> of course he is <laughs> of sort of sorting out, okay, we need business to like this and have it be workable, but we need to keep our friends at NRDC and, and the Sierra club and all these groups that by the way, in, in made a big show of endorsing him back in June, right when this process started. So they need their friends more than ever, particularly with the political dynamics. So keep an eye on the regs that are coming out on this. Um, remember, this is all happening with the backdrop of all these renewable technologies that they need to work. Wind is having all kinds of trouble as things are hard to build in places like New York and New Jersey. Uh, the carbon pipelines that that they were banking on have all fallen apart because of NIMBY issues. Um, the 4,000 auto dealers uh, sent a letter uh, yesterday, I think, to the administration saying that the that the EV mandate, uh, despite the federal tax credits, is is not something that that consumers are taking up, and they haven't even built out the built out the infrastructure. So there's a lot teetering. Like there's a ton of money on the sidelines wanting to come in, but if these rules don't come out in the right way, they're not going to get the political boost, the policy boost, the regulatory boost they need. This is tough. Talk about a high wire act. Okay, I've got a story. I will try to make this succinct, but I have been following the I've been following AI very closely in, in general, but in particular the the Sam Altman ouster back in, I think he's now officially back in uh installed at OpenAI. Microsoft's gonna have a a, a non-voting uh observation presence uh at the board. Um, but there's been some interesting coverage. Some is some is some is hard facts, some is rumors, some are leaks about what actually gave rise to the ouster in the first place, which is um, sort of the, the, <laughs> the algorithm called QSTAR. And essentially it is ChatGPT, but for math. Uh, and it was able to perform math very accurately at a grade school level. So it might have the capacity, why is this a big deal? It might have the capacity to solve all math in the future, creating its own formulas instead of relying on an algorithm alone. So what we know is that they have been researching how to improve mathematical reasoning with process supervision. So anybody who's used ChatGPT recognizes like it's good at a lot of things. It's good at writing. It's terrible at math. It can't do, uh, it can't do physics. It can't do a math equation for you. And if you ask it to, it's probably going to be wrong. So OpenAI fired Sam Altman with no explanation, but the words threat to humanity were included by staff researchers. That's been widely reported in a, in a letter that they signed. At the recent Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation, which we talked about um, the Biden-Xi meeting, right, in San Francisco, Sam Altman said, four times now in the history of OpenAI, the most recent time was just in the last couple of weeks, I've gotten to be in the room when we sort of push the veil of ignorance back and the frontier of discovery forward and getting to do that is the professional honor of a lifetime. Here are the leaks. Artificial general intelligence was achieved. That's what they think might have happened behind the scene. There was an email with the subject line re-Q-451-921 circulated. This is not verifiable. Uh, but the email said, QSTAR exhibits metacognition. It is thinking through about problem space and choosing optimal policies in order to choose optimal actions. And this demonstrates an unprecedented ability to apply this for cross-domain learning. Why is this significant? Because 
there's a different set of abilities that goes with math. Logical reasoning is essentially at its core. And every time Sam Altman talks about AI, he talks about reasoning as the thing that really, really, really needs to be improved. This We know this has been a focus. So if QSTAR works, there is an entirely new set of problems that it could solve. For example, could it cure cancer or will it backfire? Um, could it initiate an existential threat to humanity? Because math is at the core of a lot of things, including code. And if it can write its own code and reason about its own code, it can essentially improve itself. And we're already beginning to see some models improve itself. So it's very possible that what Ilya Sutskever saw uh, in the weeks leading up to Sam Altman's ouster was this program that they had been working on, QSTAR, um, essentially achieve a, a, a groundbreaking ability to do math on its own and to think about itself thinking. If this is true, it could be a very, very big deal. And it's no wonder that it might have spooked the board had they not been fully informed uh, about the potential consequences. So that's something I'm watching very carefully. Lucy, are you following this closely? Yeah, but definitely not as closely as you are. But that's really interesting. Okay. It's a- oh, maybe you should do another, you should do a an, um, an episode on it. If none of this made sense to you, we will do a whole episode on this. Maybe a few. It is interesting. The whole structure of just how OpenAI was like functioning is so weird. Like the graph. Very graph. weird. <laughs> yeah, very weird. Okay, gang, let's flip over to Politicology Plus, uh, where we are going to talk about the power of the administrative state, executive authority. And I'm thinking about this in the context of a potential Trump administration in the future. (sighs) But before we do that, where can everybody find you on the internet, Liam? At LP Donovan on on X, and definitely check out the Lobby Shop podcast on whatever platform you get your pod where all fine pods exist exactly lucy i'm on twitter (laughs) you're not saying it at lucy m caldwell (laughs) and i will i will never speak to you on twitter or otherwise the way that elon musk speaks to andrew ross sorkin also known as jonathan you mean jonathan (laughs) his friend jonathan his friend jonathan his very close long time close friend jonathan (laughs) and i am still reluctantly on Twitter, X at Ron Steslow. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, we love to hear from you and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.